0: <laughs> and when I turned around to record this episode of Toby Haddox Who's Round, they were all wearing eye patches, though they didn't actually need to. And I think this may be the first edition of Toby Haddox Who's Round to be done where both participants wearing a collar and tie and it is certainly the first because it's my first time in the illustrious Garrick Club uh, so I'm going to ask my guest who is a member here who's kindly invited me into this, this hallowed building to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who.
1: My name's Milton Johns and I happen to have done three separate Doctor Who storylines uh, way back in 68, and uh, a couple in the 70s with Tom Baker. Well, we were talking before we started because it's, it's very
0: timely that we talk about your Doctor Who debut, because as we speak, it came out, rather shockingly for everybody, on DVD a couple of weeks ago. It's The Enemy of the World, in which I have to say you
1: steal the show as, as Benwick, the sadistic uh, security man. Well, it's 45 years ago. Um, that's a heck of a long time. Um, I'd given it up for Lost. Everyone said it's been wiped, and there we are, you won't see it again. Uh, And then suddenly it appears, uh, to the great pleasure of a lot of uh, aficionados, and uh, also to myself, because it would be rather nice looking at it to realise that I was once young, really. (laughs) uh, So you're not an actor that minds watching yourself? No, I've always done that, uh, always, uh, because... Whatever you do, uh, even if you think you've done it particularly well, you can improve on it. And uh, if you find something that hasn't worked right, make a mental note of that, and next time you're in a similar situation, make sure you don't fall into that trap again. Uh, now, I've always, I've always, uh, always watched myself, um, but I've always watched myself, I think, as a third person. Um, not, uh, n- not as me, as it were. You, know, you just centre in on it uh, and, and, and watch it as though it was someone you didn't know at all. Although the cast is full of
0: people you probably knew very well just by the fact that actors worked a lot and actors worked a lot with each other, so shall we start at the top with Patrick Troughton?
1: Patrick Troughton in my estimation was the best actor, the best all-round actor ever to play Doctor Who. I'm not saying he was the best Doctor Who but he was certainly the best all-round actor He was uh, uh, superb. Um, Almost anything. You could put him into farce. You could put him into high comedy. You could put him into tragedy, whatever. Um, The only odd thing was you never got to know Pat. You didn't get to know him. Um, He was an intensely private man. Uh, Later on, I did two six-month series with him in the 80s. Uh, taping in uh, Granada. So we were up in Granada for a few days. You'd get to know people over that period of time. I didn't get to know Pat. Pat was an intensely private man. I greatly admired him as an actor. uh, But as a man, I never got through to him at all. And I don't think that was a personal thing. I think very few people did.
0: Well, it's it's an odd
1: paradox about actors, isn't it? In the sense
0: that... Because I sometimes wonder when I ask people to do this some people perfectly reasonably say I'm, I'm happy to perform but I don't want to talk about myself And um, do you, uh, I mean has that ever been part of it for you that the hiding behind a, a, a character or for you is it a completely different thing that
1: well I don't know it started when I was uh, six or seven um, I was at school naturally in uh, still just in the infant school uh, and every end of term Christmas and in the summer a little entertainment was put on. Uh, On this occasion we had a group of players Uh, I suppose nowadays it would be called theatre in education Uh, but then uh, they came round and they did a a storyline and then in the second half they got half a dozen of the children to take part in it and to the great consternation of my teacher uh, I was chosen as, as one of the ones to go and uh, take part uh, because apparently I was quite a quiet child um, uh, and reserved and she thought, oh dear, he's going to hate this. Anyway, I was told the storyline and we had lived. Um, and I said something. Imagine the entire school, in infant school, junior school is, is, is in a semicircle in front of you. And I said something, I wasn't trying to be funny, uh, but I said something that tickled their fancy, and they all roared with laughter. And you could actually feel the strength of the laugh on your face. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's, you know, that's rather nice. I wonder if I could do it again. Um, and somehow or another, I had the sense to wait until the right moment, and I said it again. Said, I said something else, which... Got a, a, a huge roar and a round of applause. And I thought to myself, I rather like this. <laughs> um, and therein, uh, particularly on radio, I was educated by the BBC, really, um, in, in all aspects in poetry, in architecture, whatever, and certainly in drama. Uh, the Saturday night play on uh, radio on the home service, as it was in those days, uh, with, with a splendid cast of actors. And we had one of those radios with a, a coloured dial, a bright dial, which was like a, a, a arch of a theatre anyway. Um, and I think I learnt an awful lot from them, an awful lot. Uh, so that's really how it started.
0: Um, so there's no precedent that, there's no theatrical background in your family? Absolutely
1: not. I come from a long line of West Country farmers. Uh, I traced them back to 1558. Uh, they farmed on Exmoor, which can't have been much of a, a, a picnic. Um, in the 1750s, one of them made a very good marriage and bought the freehold of a farm in Somerset. Halsey Manor farm Um, and in those days right up until the Victorian times uh, the uh, first son had the farm, the second son uh, had the rented farm and the third son therein after had to fend for himself either work for his brothers or fend for himself and in the 1870s the third son moved to Bristol and so I was born and brought up in a working class district of Bristol Bedminster, uh, but as I say, I was really educated by radio. And then
0: uh, you had to uh, apply for drama school. Was the, the family resistance? I mean, is
1: not at all. My father by that time had died. Uh, my mother didn't really understand why I wanted to do it, but was very supportive, uh, uh, to which I've always been grateful. I did. I did a lot of amateur work in my teens uh, which really was my weekly rep equivalent. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that and as a teenager I had a reputation that I would go anywhere and do anything. I opened one side of Bristol uh, in a play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and the other side of Bristol on one Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Um, The thought of that nowadays Frightened me of course when i was 18 or 19 it didn't Um, i belonged to an amateur club called the curtain theater club and the first show i did with them was the little foxes and it was directed by uh, a little fellow uh, who had been professional and he was quite brilliant uh, and uh, illuminated the whole thing we did very well on the opening night I didn't have a nerve in my body, uh, and I couldn't understand why everyone else was being nervous. I thought, you know, we've rehearsed, we know what we're doing, why are they, why are they getting nervous? I was that green. And there was a point where uh, the, the, the main female character had a... Her, I moved downstage, and she had a, a page-long harangue over my shoulder. Uh, that was fine. And because it was such a success, we were invited to a little Welsh town, Amonford, a little mining town, in a festival they had there. And we played on the Saturday night, and I was so green, I didn't even pace the stage. And we came to this moment, and uh, I set my line and turned and walked three paces downstage. And as I reached the edge of the stage there was a a gasp from the people sitting right in front of me and I thought in my conceit that I was going down better there than I'd, I'd done in Bristol. And then I happened to look down and the front of my feet was over the edge of the stage. I'd almost ended up in the orchestra pit and that was the moment I lost my virginity, my theatrical virginity, there and then. Thereafter, I was as nervous as everyone else. So um, I barely got away with that. <laughs> <laughs> could have broken my legs, really. <laughs> um, then uh, I was very much encouraged by a critic of the Western Daily Press. And uh, he wrote several favourable articles about me, why, why I should go into the profession. Anyway, I, I went to the Bristol Vic Theatre School I uh, did two very happy years there, very happy years, and joined the Bristol Vic Company and spent the first two and a half years in the business uh, with them. But when I was a student, if there was a big production and they needed folks to hold a spear or walk on, uh, the second year students would go down to the theater and do that. But when I was in the first year, the second year students had a heavy schedule And the the director, Bill Ross, said to me, um, would you like to go down to the theatre? I had one line in the pub scene, and I was a footman later on, but just to be in that professional atmosphere uh, with people like Viola Lyle and and others, um, and Joe Tewson, who's a great friend of mine now still... um, that was, that was marvellous. The leading man of the company was Leonard Rossiter. And he was playing Tony Lumpkin. And I was very thrilled because I always got a laugh on my line in the pub scene. That was fine, but on the first Saturday night, things were going so well. Len was playing with the audience and he put in an extra bit of business before my line. And because of the amateur work I'd done, I had the sense to wait until his laugh was just edging over the top and uh, come in with my line, and I got a better laugh, which thrilled me as a child I was. And in the interval, I was up in the dressing room. I remember it was dressing room 13, which was right at the far away from the stage, as you could possibly get. And in the interval, there came a knock on the door, and one of the other fellows opened it, one of the other ASMs or students, and in came Len Rossiter, leading man of the company. And he looked across to where I was, and he came to me, and he said, I must apologize for putting in that extra bit of business. He said, you coped with it very well, but I shouldn't have put you in that position. Now, he was leading man of the company, Dressing Room 13 hadn't seen a leading man of the company since Sarah Siddons' days. (laughs) And uh, I thought, by golly, that's professionalism. Um, And that has always stayed with me, always stayed with me. Len was was very good, um, uh, very good to me. Um, After I'd done uh, quite a bit of rep, two and a half years at Bristol, six months at Sheffield... Uh, I bestowed myself on London. We used to say uh, we were going to town, as we used to call it. Um, And London could not contain its indifference at all. (laughs) I I wasn't getting any work at all. I was out of work for three months. And my wife happened to be sitting on a district line train and Len Rossiter got in at at Fulham and looked across and recognised her and asked what I was doing. And she said, well, nothing, really. So anyway, they they chatted and he got off. The next day, I had a a call to go and see uh, uh, Americans who were putting on semi-detached, a play that Len had done in Coventry, uh, which Olivier did in London Um, not so well. It, It wasn't Olivier's part at all. Uh, and apparently they were going to do it on Broadway with Len playing. Um, And there was a part of his uh, brother-in-law. So I went to see these people, and it was fairly obvious they weren't interested. So afterwards I sent a a card to Len saying, because I knew he must have done it, said thank you, thank you, you know, sorry it didn't work out, but thank you very much. The next week I had a call from the Belgrade Coventry, offering me six months' work at the Belgrade, which at that time was really going places. Uh, The cathedral had recently opened. Uh, um, They had something called a pedestrian precinct, which was the first in the country. Um, And when I got there, Len was rehearsing semi-detached pre-Broadway. And although he hotly denied it, I know he got me the job. And, in fact, I stayed 18 months at Coventry. Um, And the first job, it was in the days when the Arts Council decided that what was needed was repertoire. Uh, That's fine, of course, for London or Stratford, but who wants to go to the theatre twice in one week in Coventry? I mean, they don't. But the, the, the Arts Council had this bee in their bonnet. And we were going to do School for Scandal and Under Milkwood. There were the first two. And we met with the local press and we all had a glass of very bad wine. Uh, and we were called to order. And the director of School for Scandal went up and said what he was going to do with the piece. which was fine. Now, before that, I'd noticed a little lad, he looked about 14, Standing there, looking most ill at ease, and I thought, "Oh, he must be a student or whatever." I think I really should go and talk to him because he does look a little bit unhappy. And to my astonishment, when they announced the director of uh, Under Milkwood, this child went forward, you see, and and up onto the platform, and I thought, "Dear God, I'm here for six months. You know, what have I done, being directed by a fourteen-year-old?" Um, but he spoke very sensibly, and next morning at the first rehearsal, inside ten minutes, you knew he was quality. You knew, you knew uh, that uh, here was someone uh, of exceptional talent. And that was Trevor Nunn, yeah. uh, who later on was poached uh, from, uh, from the, to Stratford. Um, but that that was the, the sort of the theatre basis you have. And then you went to town and you got a toe in the uh, uh, television market, which in those days, of course, all the major companies had casting uh, offices, and they would send people around to the reps. um, And then you'd get a, you know, a small part at Granada. And then a few months later, you'd get a bigger part. And so you were on their books, as it were. uh, And it all went from there.
0: Uh, and so we come to television. Uh, it's interesting, a, a friend of mine gave me um, a selection of the Softly Softly episodes that still exist, mm-hmm. and there you go, who turns up. You, you I mean, you're sort of, you, you, you did, there wasn't a television programme you didn't do. So instead of me leading you to, to some, I guess what, what were the ones that, that stick in your mind, say, in the 60s when you were breaking into television that either you learnt from or that you thought were particularly uh, memorable for, for good or bad reasons?
1: <laughs> well, I got into Softly Softly uh, because I did an interview for Z Cars, uh, which sounds a bit silly, but um, they said to me, um, "Do you come from the north?" And I said, "No, I come from the West Country." Uh, I said I can do a northern accent, but I come from the West Country, and uh, that was fine. Didn't get the job, obviously, but a couple of months later, they said, "We're taking, we're taking Z Cars into new territory." and it's going to be based at uh, Bristol, in the West Country. <laughs> uh, and they'd obviously remembered what I said. Um, and I played some little Weasley character uh, in, in that. Most of them were live, but oddly enough, I didn't do a live, um, softly, softly. In the early days, they were they were live. But... Um, uh... Uh excellent, excellent crowd to work with, of course Frank Windsor and uh, Stratford Johns Alan Stratford Johns uh, who lived fairly near me at that time in Wimbledon and gave me a lift in two rehearsals and one day uh, I got into the car and I realised there was something wrong with him he was, he was obviously rather shaken and I thought oh dear, has his wife left him or what, you know I don't, and I said, "You don't see him yourself." And he said, "No, no, I'm not." Uh, and I said, "Well, if you want to talk about it, do. If you don't, don't no, no." He said, "I just had some very bad news this morning." And I said, "Oh dear," thinking it was someone's death. And he said, uh, "Yes, very bad news. They've sold a whole series of uh, the other, the, the other one, uh, to to Europe or whatever." And I said, well, I'm sorry, Alan, I don't understand. What, what's wrong about that? And he said, well, it's put me in the surtax range, he said. <laughs> yeah. and, and I thought, there, there, any other actor in the country who'd received a boost like that, it would, he would have thrown his cap over the windmill. But poor old Alan was totally, totally distressed. <laughs> because, and I thought, well, you can't win. You can't win, can you? Um, But uh, the first Doctor Who I did in 68, that was in my early uh, television days, Um, I think the thing you, you were working with very experienced people, very experienced people, uh, and that helped enormously. Uh, Characters like Colin Douglas, um, as well as, of course, Pat Troughton, but, but, fellows who had been character actors uh, for a long time in British television and it was lovely to brush shoulders with them.
0: Bill Kerr's no slouch.
1: Bill Kerr indeed who's still with us Mm. who's still with us in in Australia Um, and uh, I've forgotten the name of the youngsters who uh, who, uh, Fraser. How how could I forget Fraser because he shares my interest in horse racing. and did ride, actually, in a few amateur races, God bless him. I I seem to remember him running around in a skirt, I mean, a a kilt uh, uh, at the time. Um, But we, we did it at Lime Grove in the old film studios, which were even then very dilapidated and now no longer exist. But the idea that anyone would be interested in that programme 45 years afterwards couldn 't have been further from our minds you were pleased to get the job it was a fortnight's work that was splendid you moved on to something else uh, and you had no idea uh, of the the impact um, although luckily in the 70s I did two more with Tom Baker uh, who was I think I think Tom was responsible for the longevity of Doctor Who. Uh, He played it with such seriousness and with such care and attention. And I remember him at read-throughs with a young uh, director and a young script editor uh, saying to them, I can't say this because two series ago I said the exact opposite. Of course, they didn't know. They had no idea. Uh, But that was the seriousness with which he took the whole business of being Doctor Who. Uh, And I think he gave, in his time, he gave it the impetus to go further on. I think it lost its way later on when they chopped and changed various uh, uh, Doctor Whos. Um, But I've got a great admiration for Tom. Extremely professional. uh, Always ready for a joke, always ready for a laugh a professional to his fingertips.
0: And it's interesting that your um, enemy of the world was Barry Letts' first direct, first contact with Doctor Who, his first directing job with Doctor Who, and the android invasion was his last. Yes, uh, isn't uh, that odd? And and he got got you in for both. Isn't
1: isn't that odd? Um, But I first worked with him as an actor, and I can't now remember what the production was, but I first worked with him as an actor, a very good director, because, he avoided, he avoided the thing that a lot of young directors who lack confidence uh, say, oh, it must be done in this way. Uh, he always let, he had an interplay with the actors and uh, the actors had a contribution to make. And sometimes, uh, as with, with directors, sometimes your original intention changes once you work with the other actors. And, um, yeah, I've got a great... Uh, a, a great. Uh, a, 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 it was a great pleasure working with him because uh, you always felt you were in the hands of a professional. You uh, had a lovely part in
0: The Android Invasion as a, as a, as a duped astronaut.
1: With, with an eye patch, yes. yes, yes, which for some reason he never flipped <laughs> up, um, which would have foreshortened the thing completely. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, yes, and uh, Nick Courtney was in that, who... Been well, a friend of mine. He,
0: he, he was supposed to be
1: in that, but he was
0: replaced by Patrick Newell. You're right. Because he was working.
1: You're right. You're right. Because Nick Nick and I go back into rep days, Farnham rep, uh, in the 60s, the early 60s. Um, so so uh, you you were constantly meeting old friends. Um, well, you and Nick are. are bonded in a way by
0: the fact that you both as well as being actors, both heavily involved in the actors' union, equity.
1: Yes, um, yes. Which
0: did, as, as a working actor, was, was there ever part of you that um, thought, well, perhaps I shouldn't be so involved in the union because then it can get you pigeonholed? Or I mean, what, what, what is it that drives an actor to, to, to become um, so involved, so heavily involved with the union?
1: Well, like Macmillan said, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> um, at that time the extreme left were desperately trying to get control of equity uh, they had a meeting at oxford in the early 60s and they planned to infiltrate six unions which they did uh, they added equity uh, for publicity value and that was the only one they didn't get hold of because we didn't have a branch and delegate structure um, which is the you know the death knell um, because that can be manipulated so uh, I I saw that Marius Goring uh, had resigned this was something like 1969 he had resigned uh, and I I thought you know you, you should be in there fighting not, not resigning and I wrote him one of those letters that you regret the moment you put into the letterbox <laughs> yeah. um, Saying to him, you know, why aren't you in there fighting? Anyway, I got a very pleasant and reasoned reply back saying why he did it. And at the end, couched in very pleasant terms, but unmistakably, was the question, if you're so, if you're so angry about it, why aren't you in there fighting?
0: Uh, more from Milton uh, because uh, one podcast with him simply wasn't enough. Uh, next time, uh, he's nominated two charities as it's two part, but his favourite charity uh, I'll link to now, which is the Actors Benevolent Fund. Actors Benevolent Fund, which is fund all one word, dot co dot uk. dot uk. More from Milton and indeed from me next time. Uh, But until then, uh, have fun.
1: Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Chris Cross.
0: Agent Spark reporting. Goods have been picked up. Division 709 compromised. More information to follow.
1: This is simply not good enough. I need to lay down some ground rules, sir. I'll be right with you, Miss... Um... Mrs Clark. Ah. Constance Clark. Leading Wren at
0: Wavenden House. Doctor! Dr Smith! I've another communication from Agent Spark. Excellent work, young lady. A Dr John Smith. No credentials. His identity evaporates as soon as one examines it too closely. The man's a spy.
1: Now this ship, my ship, has been disabled ever since I arrived on your planet completely and utterly disabled. Every system, every readout. These are the coordinates. We will descend to a depth of 300 feet. Yes, sir. And then? Then we wait. I have some good news and some bad news, Mrs. Clark. Those explosives all seem to be wired up to a timing device, and I just found it. And the good news? That was the good news. The bad news is it's about to go off. We are closing in. Object sighted 500 yards ahead. Good. This could be the breakthrough that turns the tide of the war. If we can control the airwaves, if we can jam all allied communications... You have no idea what you're dealing with. <laughs> Kennedy, stop it! You're hurting him! Big finish. We love stories.